This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is my co-host, Brian Rinaldi. How's it going, Brian? Going great, Ed. How are you? Great. We're back with another Developer Digest show. And before we get started this week, I wanted to give out a quick call to action that would help us out a great deal here at the show. So we have set up a survey to help improve the show, and we need your feedback. So if you could go to developer.telerik.com and uh, walk through some of the questions that we put out there, and they're about show quality and some other things that would really help us make the show better, and uh, to help you know reward folks for going through all that trouble, we are going to kind of raffle off some t-shirts and Telerik software licenses. Uh, so we have uh, 10 t-shirts, and we'll uh, bundle that with a software license, and we'll give that out to 10 random winners that filled out the sur- survey. Um, and uh, just a little side note on that, uh, we can only send the t-shirts within the US, so if you're outside of the United States, then you'll just get a software license to uh, Telerik uh, DevCraft, um, is that the ultimate collection, Brian? Complete. Uh, complete. Complete collection, yeah, that's right, the complete collection. Uh, which is a nice package. Uh, it's about a couple hundred dollar package there, so it's worth. I think it's checking. more than that, isn't it? I thought uh, it was. Fun. Let's see. You haven't had to buy it in a while. This yeah, time. I've. I was a customer for about eight years before I joined, and after I joined, I had to actually go out and purchase it myself. So I was a DevCraft Ultimate. And uh, I'm not sure what. So our list price for DevCraft. Com- Craft complete, by the way, is $14.99. So more than so enough. So it's a pretty good prize <laughs> to um, to fill out the survey and get entered in that drawing. So we appreciate the feedback, and uh, we could really use your help there. So uh, just go to developer.telerik.com/survey. So on to the first item. Uh, we had a another show last week that went out and I talked to uh, Jared Ferris um, nice guy that I know from uh, Columbus Ohio Um, and he talked about uh, what's going on with the web in 2016 and then he was uh, kind enough to follow that up with a blog post Uh, and we featured that on the Telerik Developer Network so there was some really cool content in there. Uh, we talked about um, like browser adoption of certain ECMAScript standards and HTML standards uh, moving forward and service workers and stuff like that. Uh, did you get a chance to check that out, Brian? Oh, yeah, of course. I, well, I posted it, right? <laughs> Everything that goes on that site goes through me, so I have to read it all. Um, but it's great. It's, it's a really good overview of what... Um, web developers and JavaScript developers should be paying attention to right now. Um, so it just kind of gives you all the different, at, you know, changes in the JavaScript language, but as well as other things like HTTP2 and you know other stuff that just 
it's worth paying attention to. Now, have you had a chance to like toy around with any of this stuff in the browser and see like what's working in say like Chrome or or maybe something's not working in something else? Me personally, no, no. I have not. No. I've noticed that um, some of the the ECMAScript uh, or JavaScript 2015 stuff um, is working. Like you can go in there and use like Lambda uh, expressions and um, or arrow functions as they call them in, C in um, JavaScript. Some of that stuff will actually work in browser uh, in Chrome anyway in some of the latest versions. So you can you can use some of this stuff just to play around with, and I think it's pretty cool that you can do that. I hope the adoption of this stuff gets really wide, so we can start using this um, you know newer stuff without having to transpile and do all this funky yeah. pre-build process. You know, you know it's interesting because he mentions in the article that there are certain aspects of even ES twenty sixteen right. Um, that work in browser, even though some ES2015 stuff still does it, right? So yeah. it's it's a it's currently well. I'm I'm glad they're moving to this this yearly release cycle where they, you know, we're not going to have these massive overhauls like like ES2015 was pretty significant, but 2016 is only a handful of features, um, and the expectation is that going forward, if they do this yearly thing, um, the features would be it wouldn't be that that significant. I mean, they're, they're important features, but they're going to be rolled out as they're done. Um, so that should be nice, but uh, but you're still always going to be like I think stuck in this weird situation where you're trying to figure out what works where when. Yeah, uh, there's a website that's out there that you can. Um, that you can go to. Um, it, the name of it's escaping me right now. Um, can I use? I believe can I use dot com. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about that later. Yeah, so that that really is where we're gonna be for a long time. But at least things are happening now. It seems like we had like this kind of lull with new features, uh, and now we're kind of picking up the speed again and getting like on a cycle with a specific cadence of a year and it's nice to see that yep uh the next article we have uh that we are talking about is improving the quality of front-end projects automatically uh and this is a several part series uh that's being written by Aurelio de rosa yeah uh, Aurelio de rosa And uh, do you know how many parts this is, Brian? I do, yes. Uh, so there is a ne the next part is uh, CSS, and then the last part is JavaScript. So we've oh, got two I... more parts coming. That's one, pretty clear and uh, concise. This week and then, yeah, one next week. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good series. Um, you know, he, it, one of the nice things is that he not only kind of lays out the issues in terms of kind of trying – why it's beneficial to try and come up with a, a plan to have a consistent code style and stuff like that, but also, you know, all the tools that he shows you are designed to do this somewhat automatically, so you're not constantly having to do, you know, um, go into somebody's code and do like a, a what do you call it, code review, right? 
which he describes as kind of like can be a tedious and complicated process, whereas these are all automated. Yeah, one thing I like that he, he talks about is like this diversity in code styles. Uh, you get quite a varying degree of code styles on any type of project, um, but in front-end uh, web development, you can really have some different perspectives on how an API should be written or how you know those the modules that you're using for your UI kind of tie together. And he shows like three very specific examples of how you can do the same thing, these three different, you know, completely different ways of styling your code. Um, I think we kind of run into that a lot in the wild, uh, especially with um, development ecosystems that are very modular, like JavaScript. Uh, Ruby's another one, for example. It's like very plug and play. And you get these like, domain-specific languages that can kind of hold you up if you're not used to seeing one style versus another. Yeah, you know, it, it's definitely true. And I, I like his idea that he's, he talks about, about that you're only, you know, the team is made up of, obviously, of individuals, but it should code as a team. He calls it the, like, kind of the musketeers principle, like all for one kind of thing. So, so you, you should be able to not really... You should be able to jump across people's different code without having to suddenly learn how it is that they built this, right? Yeah, and he kind of implements like some standards using some automated tooling, uh, on especially on the HTML side, uh, with some linting automation yep. tools. And the other um, parts are coming. Yeah, and um, so so he'll be covering like how to do this with CSS and JavaScript soon. You're saying? Yes. CSS, and I think the CSS one includes SAS, if I remember correctly. Nice. Yeah. I um, like that. Yeah, and I, I enjoy the, the HTML linting idea, too, because I don't know how many times I've gone into a project and you just see this horrendous HTML. Like, I went on a little bit of a rant on uh, the show that I did with L Waters, um, which was about accessibility, and I, I asked her, I said, "What's you know, what's one of the easiest things you can do?" And she said, "You know, just write semantic HTML for God's sakes. Like, use the the tags that you're supposed to use for what they're intended for." And I was kind of like, I venting some past frustrations where, like, you have this paragraph tag that's inside of a a bold tag that's inside of another bold tag that's got some wacky style on it just so it looks like an H1. And it's like, just just use the H1 already. <laughs> like We don't need seven bold tags with special styles on them. So it's, it's nice to see, like, you can implement some automated tooling for that um, so you don't have to go hunt people down and scream at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we got... Uh, article by TJ Vantel, one of our uh, uh, teller uh, advocates, developer advocates here. Uh, this is a uh, quick Angular 2 hosting with Angular CLI and GitHub pages. So, Brian, what what is a GitHub page? I'll, I'll play uh, devil's well, advocate. Get, GitHub pages, yeah. GitHub pages it offers like, free hosting for... Generally speaking, it's just for static web pages. So I deal with it a lot because I do a lot of work in Jekyll and other static uh, site generators. But obviously, you could just put regular HTML pages. In this case, he's putting, um, he walks through putting 
Angular 2 sites on there, but there's a little bit of, of um, work you have to do to kind of a little workaround that he talks about that allows that to work inside GitHub pages. And uh, like, what what types of things could you you know make use of this for? Well, so I mean, he basically says this is for kind of putting up a prototype or something like that to show a client or something. You know, it's not necessarily for a production site, um, but it's a nice free way to put up to kind of host a page temporarily or something to for testing or something like that, right? Yeah, you could do like a little product page for some open source project that you have, or sure. Um, I mean, for 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 regular static sites, this GitHub pages is great for production usage. But for Angular two, is because of the kind of uh, little workaround stuff, he he doesn't recommend it for for production. You could do some uh, like may, maybe some basic prototyping. Get exactly. A, get somebody to buy in on a little snippet of uh an application or something like that mm-hmm. yeah, exactly because nobody nobody works behind firewalls and can't get things out to clients <laughs> that was a big problem right. i always had like i always wanted to get something and show it to a client and it was like i had to jump through hoops to get it outside the network so they could actually see it and it was like none of our hosting servers were ever ever allowed to like share things that weren't you know, passed through this huge chain of uh, sign-offs before it went on, you know, to the outside world. So there, there's always been these little services that, that help with that, and this could be one of them. Yep. So Alexa, can I use, Brian? Yeah, so you were talking about can I use.com, right? So <laughs> um, I have a, an Amazon Echo. And so I decided to see they have an open open API for uh, services. So Echo, Echo Dot, um, and a whole bunch of other Amazon devices. Now they've added it to like their Fire TV and all this stuff. All integrate Alexa, which is um, the kind of the service that the voice activated service where you ask it questions and it gives you answers, kind of like Siri on iOS, right? So, but theirs has an open API that you can add your own, what they call skills. I, it's like an app, but for Alexa. Um, so I wrote one allowing you to ask it about um, browser features via the data on canIuse.com. So, and, yeah. The article just walks through how to build it and how I built it, right, basically. Uh, what type of, um, is this in JavaScript or is this... Uh... Right. Okay, it's a JavaScript thing. It's in JavaScript, so it's all um, it's all done with uh, using Node, and you host Node, um, the Node service on uh, Amazon's uh, AWS, and then you integrate it with their developer portal, is where you put all the stuff for the Alexa skill. Um, so it's just Node, yeah, just JavaScript. So is there anything that the Echo is like? done to improve your life where you're like i could never live without this thing um no no <laughs> uh, I, so i'll tell you that one of the fun so i know people who love it but mostly have figured out ways to use it for home automation stuff um otherwise a lot of people use it like as a you know for listening to music and stuff like that but i wouldn't necessarily say i found it to be Incredibly useful. Um, 
I just thought it would be fun to be able to build something for it. So. See, the the point I was getting at is that needs to be done. Like this is your this is your moment. Like you need to go build this thing. You know, here's here's the, the article to get you started. App. Like go build the killer app that everybody's got to have one of these. Like be that yeah. be that guy like this. Like uh, well, change the world idea, with Alexa. Idea. If you have the idea to for what I could build that would be the killer app, then let me know. <laughs> Is there, like, I heard there's, like, a, like, you can just order stuff through Alexa, right? Through Amazon? Yeah, so you can. Um, and I've never done it, um, but I know lots of people who have basically gone to other people's houses where they have one of those and filled up their shopping cart with items. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I heard that's, like, a... a like a modern day prank where yeah. <laughs> you go to your friend's house and you're like, okay, I want yeah. 15 cases of, and then you blow up your friend's Amazon account. Yeah. Thankfully, um, the good news is that it doesn't actually complete the order. It just adds things to your cart. But I wonder if it trashes like your history, like, you know how it, it kind of does, like, that machine learning type of stuff where, you know, viewers or people who viewed this item also bought, and then all of a sudden you have a million things in your your uh, advertising space that you never wanted to see. <laughs> it, it's possible. I haven't tried. So I haven't done it. So it is possible, though, that, you know, because they do recommend you items based on um, what you what you read oh sorry what you buy yeah i have done that to people before where you, you send them a link to a book on amazon and make sure the book is something that you know is just not going to be their favorite thing so then they get multiple suggestions for <laughs> like yep. how to cook roadkill or whatever wacky thing you can find on there yeah uh, definitely happens because my wife and i share the amazon account she has a kindle and she all the books she buys basically i go to the home page and it's filled with stuff recommended for her so um anyway next, next on the trolling people with amazon podcast <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next article we have is the .NET CLI Decoded. This was uh, written by uh, my coworker Sam Basu, um, and he's talking about how to use the .NET uh, command line interface um, on Mac to build ASP.NET applications. So that sounds like a mouthful, but uh, since .NET Core, um, we now have the ability to build ASP.NET applications on Mac. And uh, to do that, um, there's a lot of uh, command line interface uh, or CLI work that you have to do. And this has changed pretty frequently. There's been a lot of churn in the tooling. So we started off with, uh, I can't remember what the verbiage even was, uh, but that turned into dnx.exe and uh, dnu. And those have merged and become what is now just .NET exe. So this thing's changed names several times. Uh, so if you've tried to keep up with it, uh, make sure you check out Sam's article so you can kind of be abreast of what the changes were in release candidate two. Um, there's going to be yes. a lot more of the stuff to come. I feel bad for you guys. Every time you write an article, it seems like it's it's uh, outdated by the time we get it up. <laughs> yeah, like like 
the .NET folks and the Angular 2 folks are, like, going toe-to-toe in the uh, Slack channel lately, just, like, trying to find out, like, whose situation is worse, like, whose bre- breaking changes are worse than whose breaking changes. Yeah. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been a rough month for all of us. Yeah, this is when you, you realize, like, you know, you understand why, why big companies push back on, you know, developers always want to buy into this stuff right away. I know I was that guy. I was always like, oh, we need the new version. It's coming out. It's so awesome. Yeah. Um, But you can get why companies push back a little bit and like, okay, I'm cool with you learning it and keeping us abreast of what we need to know, but we're not implementing this anytime soon. Yeah, they don't call it the bleeding edge for nothing. Yep. Yeah, I was telling Sam this morning, I said, this isn't the bleeding edge anymore. This is just a bloody massacre. (laughs) It's just just one wound after another. It's, It's awful, like... We've got uh, all the .NET stuff changing every moment and all the Angular stuff just changing every moment, and we're trying to keep up with it all. And we know developers are frustrated, and we are, and we're just yep. trying to trying to provide as much information as possible to, to make sure people can keep up with it. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of .NET CLI stuff is coming. Uh, there's going to be a lot of new build tools in the pipeline, especially into whatever version 2 is going to be. So release candidates out. Um, the 1.0 release will be uh, in a couple days, I think the 27th. And uh, this should be pretty solid through the 27th. And then they will go back into uh, betas for the next version. And some of this stuff may change again. Or just new features will be added. So there's, there's going to be a lot more tooling to come. So. Keep an eye out for more more articles, especially from Sam. I'm sure he's um, interested in following up with this stuff. Oh yeah, I think I have his next one already sitting in my queue. So I, I wouldn't doubt it. He said he was working on something. Yep. Uh, so we had Todd Anglin, our chief evangelist uh, and VP of technology here at Progress. Um, he got like an interview with uh, DZone about yeah. native, native script 2.0. Right. Yeah, he talks a bit about the Angular integration and how it, how it kind of came to be. Um, he talks a little bit about TypeScript integration. And, and just this is not like a technical heavy article. It's a lot about an overview of the project and what we've been working on the past, you know, year leading up to 2.0, how some of the changes in 2.0 happen, um, how, you know, and a little bit maybe of what to expect from from us going forward. Yeah, so if you want to check that out, um, sign up for the newsletter that uh, we talk about on the Developer Digest show. So the newsletter is the Telerik Developer Digest, and you can get that at developer.telerik.com. And just click on the uh, or enter your email and click on the sign up uh, button there. It's also in the show notes for the podcast if you happen to stumble upon that first. Uh, so you can go find it there as well. Uh, so the the next article is one that I found um, from yeah. around the web. Uh, and you're gonna so have to explain it because I, I it's it was out of my. Uh... <laughs> I will <laughs> try to do my, my best. I will try to do my best. So I thought this was really interesting because um, uh, not only the subject, but who it came from. Uh, this uh, uh, guy that I, I 
run into at conferences a lot. Um, he's a brilliant developer. His name's Jimmy Bogard. Uh, he is actually on the podcast um, about maybe a, maybe a little bit less than a year ago to talk about his uh, open source project, AutoMapper. Um, Jimmy's uh, primarily .NET developer, and his article that he wrote uh, on his blog at uh, Los Techies is um, CQ using CQRS and REST. They're the uh, in CQRS and REST the perfect match. Uh, so. I, this is very like high level um, uh, like application architecture for large scale distributed applications type of things. I have very little and no experience with this, so I'm just gonna try to try to sum it up for everybody. Um, but it's really interesting stuff. So first of all, CQRS uh, is command query responsibility segregation. So the basic ideas behind this, and I may butcher it, uh, please please don't shoot the messenger here, um, is that you have a separation between uh, the queries that you use to uh, get your data from uh, your data store or your application, uh, and then you have a different set of responsibilities to write to the data to uh, a database. Uh, and these may actually be separate databases that uh, communicate with one another and um, uh, reconcile data uh, on a backend service. So it's about you know maintaining this this separation of concerns at a very very high architecture architectural level. Um, and then he goes into how this actually works very well with REST, which is another very <laughs> high-level um, uh, architectural pattern. And uh, REST, the way that uh, Jimmy's using it, is um, at the full hypermedia state. So uh, much of the application's information is being sent over the wire. So you can think of things like uh, even the buttons on, that are appearing on a form, um, the data for that will be sent down over the wire. So you'll have uh, in your payload, like this has a click action and here's the URL for that click act or submit action. Um, and maybe there's a delete action and this is the URL or the endpoint that you're gonna hit for that delete action. And then the UI kind of assembles all of this stuff um, so he's ma he's marrying up CQRS and REST and sending down the wire uh, the command uh, responsibilities for um, reading and writing to the application. So it's really a cool read. Uh, even if you're not doing that type of stuff, it's, um, it's interesting to know what type of large-scale patterns are out there. Uh, at least I kind of geeked out to it a little bit. Um, so uh, you can you can find Jimmy Bogard online and um, on Twitter and uh, his articles linked in our newsletter if you want to go read it. Good stuff. That's uh, so, a good explanation, I think. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, I'm in no position to tell you if you were wrong about anything. So, like I said, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I've I've watched uh, Jimmy give some of these presentations before, so that's about. That's about the, the most of it I've uh, gleaned is from uh, just watching him at conferences and stuff. So hopefully I got it right. Sure. Uh, if not, you can go read the article and 
prove me wrong. Uh, so the next article we've uh, got on our uh, Developer Digest newsletter is uh, install Xcode proj for native script iOS development on Mac OS. Brian, you want to take this? Yeah, so basically this Xcode proj is, uh, is a way to um, create and modify and automate kind of Xcode projects via Ruby. Um, and it, this is a really short post, um, and actually it's not, the Xcode proj um, is not NativeScript specific. Uh, there's just apparently a little bit of a, of a um, workaround you have to go through when installing it for use with NativeScript projects, and that's what he kind of shows you how to do. And this was uh, written by Nick Raboy. Right. Yeah. We cover, um, I think, every single time. <laughs> yeah, and I actually have recorded a full podcast with him. It will be airing very soon. I would say, if not next week, in the next uh, three weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Um, he's he's always writing. This guy is always writing stuff, um, and he's been doing a lot of native scripts uh, writing. And it was this this article is really interesting to me because he he's using a Ruby-based like project management configuration system to set up projects for iOS, and those projects are written in NativeScript. So here we've got yeah. Ruby being used to manage iOS projects, which are generally written in like in Swift or um, uh, what's the other right. uh, Objective C, but Instead right, of using no. those, we're using JavaScript. So we've exactly. got like all these different things just kind of being mashed up, and that's the thing. That's one of the things I love about what we do, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, his site is called the Polyglot Developer anyway, so it kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, I love seeing people do stuff outside the box, and I think this is fairly outside the box if you think about all of the different parts that were involved. Yes. Yeah, so good. that's another good read. Um, and then we have a peek into .NET open source contributions. Uh, this was an article um, by Jeff Fritz. And uh, this isn't your average, like, .NET article. Like, this is talking about your open contributions. source contributions, but... Yeah. The but way... like where they came from, yeah, where, globally, like not not where they came from, like person. This is he really like mapped out where all the contributions are coming from around the world. Yeah, so they took like the geospatial data off of mm -hmm. GitHub, I, I assume, and yeah. mapped that out. Um, I think he said he was using Power BI, uh, Microsoft's Power BI, uh, and he kind of like plots out all this data. Um, on maps and various other ways. Yep. And it's just a really interesting view of like how you know global this .NET open source project has become and where all the commits are coming from. It's just really interesting data uh, in the way it's presented is it's done really well. Uh, so I thought that was a really cool and different uh, yeah. article that I haven't seen really seen myself before. I don't know. If, I'm sure there there may be some kind of um, uh, what do you call it? 
comparison done like that before, but I, I know I haven't seen one, so this is the first time I've seen somebody do this. It's really neat. Yeah, it looks it, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, it's it like it's not uh, it's not something like teaching you anything specifically about net, but just about .net, but about just you know the size of the community now that it's open source and the you know uh, the in the number of contributions they're getting from around the world, which is kind of neat. Yeah, what I liked is it's more than just like we have this many stars or this is our cadence like we have 100 commits a, an hour or something like that it was like where are they coming from and you know what what locations are they centered around and it was just really neat yep uh so that's that's all the articles i have for this week's developer digest i just wanted to follow up and uh talk about the survey one last time so if you guys can get out to developer.telerik.com slash survey and give us some feedback on that. Uh, tell us the truth. Let us know what you think of the show length, the quality, the content, all that good stuff. And we will put your name in the hat for a free license to DevCraft Complete and a t-shirt. So if you can get by developer.telerik.com slash survey, we'd appreciate it. Brian, any last words? Oh, that sounds so... That sounds ominous, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Last words, last meal. <laughs> no. Nothing right now. Just enjoying summer. All right, man. So thanks again for uh, helping me with the show, Brian. And uh, right. we'll talk thanks, to everybody Ed. soon. Bye-bye. Take care.